0: WDBM East Lansing.
1: 89FM. The Impact. And now. Impact
0: Exposure.
2: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University. This is
0: Impact Exposure. Impact.
3: City Pulse here on The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz, editor and publisher of Lansing's Weekly Alternative Newspaper, here with our managing editor, Andy Belaskovitz. Later in the show, our classical music writer, Larry Cosentino, will be in with some music from the uh, St. Petersburg Philharmonic, which is playing a big concert at the Wharton Center on Monday night. And we'll talk to graphic novelist Nate Powell, uh, who's going to be in Lansing on Friday, to discuss the uh, graphic novel he has illustrated uh, with uh, U.S. Representative John Lewis about the civil rights movement in the United States. And uh, we'll also talk to developer and MSU uh, uh, president of the Board of Trustees, Joel Ferguson, about that uh, uh, big lawsuit filed against uh, his development company uh, by the Jerome's of Lansing. And Dennis Lowney, vice chairman of the Board of Commissioners of the Board of Water and Light, will be uh, on the show as well. Uh, first up, though, if you pay attention to politics, you saw last week that, uh, uh, that the governor and uh, his uh, would-be Democratic opponent, Mark Schauer, uh, seemed to be uh, about where they were uh, last fall, but that's not a good thing for Mark Schauer. And uh, here to discuss that with us is uh, the head of Epic MRA, Bernie Porn. Bernie, welcome back to the show.
0: Great to be with you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Did I get that right? Is it about the same, but that's just not good for Schauer?
0: Right. Well, there's a, there's a, was an eight-point uh, lead uh, uh, for uh, Snyder uh, in uh, uh, September of last year, and it's still eight points. Uh, however, now it's 47 to 39, which means he's three points closer to the magical 50%. And so uh, that's problematic for uh, Mark Schauer if uh, uh, he uh, doesn't, uh, at some point fairly soon, get uh, better known uh, to uh, Michigan voters uh, uh, he's still unknown to uh, uh, a majority, uh, either unknown or, or they haven't formed an opinion of him. They may recognize his name. Uh, but the uh, 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 big question will be whether or not uh, he will be competitive in terms of uh, fundraising so that he can compete with, uh, with the uh, uh, money that uh, Mark Sh- or that uh, Governor Snyder can put into the race himself. And plus, he's doing pretty well, as I understand it, raising uh, funds from uh, other sources.
3: And uh, we got a big clue about concern about Shower uh, when Bob King, president of the UAW, uh, uh, the word got out that he had approached Gretchen Whitmer about changing her changing mind. Changing her mind. Uh, so uh, there is there there is apparently concern now. Shower though, it, it's it's fascinating really because he's not like an unknown. He's been in Michigan politics a long time and uh, rose to the national level
0: well he uh, is unknown uh, uh, to uh, uh it was 67% in september now it's only 54% uh, with another 20% that uh, really have not formed an opinion of him so uh, uh he he is unknown obviously he'd be better known in central michigan uh, uh, where he served in congress but uh, uh he, he still has a long way to go in terms of uh, uh having uh, uh the the Voters of Michigan uh, aware of his name and, and uh, let alone uh, uh, having a favorable opinion of him, uh, competing against uh, uh, Governor Snyder. However, at one point, Governor Snyder's numbers were so low, particularly after the right-to-work legislation had passed, uh, that uh, a shower was running even with him at that point, even though he was unknown to Mm. about 80% of the public. However, Governor Snyder has uh, done a great deal to, uh, I think, recover from uh, that uh, uh, period of doldrum uh, uh, where he was uh, uh, very high in his negative job rating. And and he also went from uh, the high 50s in terms of favorability to right after the right-to-work legislation passed, he dropped uh, down to uh, more unfavorable than favorable.
3: What, what are some of the things that uh, you think have contributed to Snyder's rise?
0: Oh, I think... Uh, uh, Outstate, he is perceived positively for some of the things that he has done in terms of the city of Detroit. Uh, He has now uh, uh, managed to uh, have a budget surplus, and so he can uh, uh, claim a a lot there. But I think the, the, the... essence of what has helped him is that there's an improving perception of the Michigan economy. Uh, in September, 56 percent said that uh, the uh, economy in Michigan was improving. Now it's bumped up to 59 percent, and that is the highest number that we have uh, measured in our polling. The other thing is that uh, back in September, uh, the the direction of the state was bouncing back and forth uh, based on whether or not uh, Governor Snyder was in good graces with the voters or in less than good graces. And now that has improved dramatically to where 49% say the state is headed in the right direction. uh, Which is uh, the same number as his total favorability. uh, He's a little bit higher than that in terms of favorability at 52%. Uh, And so he really didn't improve that much in terms of his his favorability numbers, notwithstanding the fact that I think he spent about a million dollars on a TV ad uh, beginning with the uh, Super Bowl. Uh, You know, and
3: uh, I'm not a football fan, so I didn't see that ad. I heard something about him
0: coming out of water. <laughs>
3: what was
0: that? He comes out of water, and and uh, it, it actually uh, t- takes a little bit to, to recognize him, but you are able to recognize him. Then they get right into the, the spiel about uh, uh, how he is uh, uh, the comeback kid and, uh, and uh, turning things around in, in Michigan. The one thing that I think is problematic for him in that ad that he is running is that uh, he talks about how the business tax cuts have contributed to 200,000 new jobs, and I think that's going to be a point of contention uh, between the Democrats and uh, and the Snyder campaign and the Republicans, because I think the the Democrats will probably claim that that's a little bit like the rooster taking credit for the for the dawn. And- but, but the public
3: always seems naive about who. I mean, they they want to blame the governor and or give credit to the governor when the economy is better or worse, and uh, often it really has nothing to much to do with the
0: governor. And, and it, and it uh, quite often uh, will depend on uh, what the ads are that are that are <laughs> running against uh, right. them. But the, the Democrats will claim that that tax cut for business, the $1.8 uh, million, billion, dollars, uh, uh, really has not contributed to an increase in jobs. That it's mostly saving the auto industry, which they will attribute uh, to, uh, to uh, President Obama. Although right now President Obama's numbers are are fading somewhat, uh, he, his favorability numbers dropped by four points, and his unfavorables went up to fifty percent. Uh, uh, and his uh, job rating is hanging right around where it was back in September at uh, sixty sixty one percent. And so uh, he is having some problems, and obviously with the rollout of the uh, of the uh, health care uh, uh, website mm-hmm. and uh, and other problems that. Uh, are confronting him why uh, uh his his numbers numbers have uh, been dropping but nationally the polling shows that both parties are uh uh not well thought of by the public and so uh uh it will be a uh, a race to the bottom i guess in terms of uh, of uh, how uh, they are perceived and, and, a, and an attempt by both sides to try and improve their their lot however the association of uh, national republicans with the tea party In terms of shutting the government down, I think that that is still having a lasting impact in terms of the Republicans having a lower. Uh, level of uh, public support than uh, what the Democrats have.
3: Uh, you're, we're talking to Bernie Porn who's uh, the president of Epic MRA about uh, his organization's latest statewide poll. You're listening to
4: City Pulse here on the Impact, Andy. Uh, yeah, and then over in the the U.S. Senate race between uh, Terry Lynn Land and, and Gary Peters, uh, Land is it, her numbers are increasing, and, and it looks like a lot of it has to do with name recognition. How serious is it at this point for? Uh, Democrats like Mike, Sh- Mark Schauer and and Gary Peters to get their name out.
0: Well, that's very important, and that's that's why, uh, uh, to the extent that they can raise enough money to go up on the air fairly soon to be you know to, to introduce themselves, that would be important. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that uh, in a way that will. Uh, uh, get them name recognition right now. So it may be a period of time before they start being competitive in terms of the polling. And in the U.S. Senate race, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, Gary Peters uh, has a name recognition problem, but I was surprised to see that Terry Lynn Land is not all that well-known. Uh, she improved from like 42 percent non-recognition to 37 percent, but that's still not uh, the kind of recognition you would expect for someone who served uh, two terms uh, uh, as uh, Secretary of State. And and right now she went from uh, a one-point deficit back in September where Peters led 38 to 37, or 80, 30, uh what is it? Uh, one one thirty eight to thirty seven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I lost I, my tra- if you don't know, I lo- don't lo- know. Lo- lost, <laughs> lost lost my train of thought there. <laughs> All these numbers, you know, right. uh, <laughs> uh, to where it, uh, she has a, a three point lead, forty one to thirty eight, and there have been a great deal of uh, of uh, TV ads that are running uh, in terms of negative on his association with the comments made by President Obama on you won't lose your health care benefits, and so they're attacking him on that point, Uh, but all of the attacks have not caused him to drop in terms of his numbers. His unfavorables Hmm. went up by three points to 13 from 10, which is not anything significant, but his vote against uh, land remains at 38% where it was before. So that really hasn't had an impact. And, um,
3: and of course, the margin of error is, margin of error is 4%. Right.
0: So it, it's still dead even. Uh, and that will be probably one of the biggest spending uh, campaigns uh, on both sides with uh, this, uh, control of the U.S. Senate at stake. Where there's going to, there is guaranteed to be probably... Uh, the highest level of spending in Michigan than probably in most of the other states uh, to try and uh, uh, keep the seat for the Democrats on the Democratic side, and the Republicans feel they have a real good shot uh, at uh, taking this seat. The Cook Political Report uh, puts it at an uh, even-up uh, race between the two of them. Uh, I think uh, we have yet to see to what extent Peters is, might be successful in trying to tie Carrie Lynn Land to some of the things that she has done in the past when she thought she had to fight a Republican primary, where she may have just associated herself a little bit too closely to the Tea Party and uh, and supported defunding the uh, Obamacare and supported the shutdown. Uh, those are some of the things that, that may haunt her in a general election, uh, but uh, Peter's... Uh, uh, has uh, that uh, issue in terms of uh, Obamacare that he's going to have to uh, uh, walk a tightrope in terms of a balancing act and explaining uh, the problems they've had. But as that is occurring, they're signing up more and more people for uh, for uh, Obamacare.
3: Now, uh, what does uh, Shower's recognition problem, how does that affect uh, Coattails in terms of other uh, legislative races and, uh, and particularly his attracting people onto the ticket with him for attorney general and secretary of state. Well, if he
0: is not running well at the top of the ticket, that will have an impact. Uh, uh, Verge Bernaro did not uh, run well at the top of the ticket and uh, lost by uh, almost 20 points, and uh, that had an impact down the ticket. And uh, when you have the top uh, running poorly, uh, then you have coattails uh, uh, for the other side. And uh, uh, clearly, if uh, Democrats aren't able to be competitive... Uh, and there's there's only so much that a shower could lose by, where that doesn't even affect uh, like a Peter's land race. We've got about one minute, Andy. Do you want to ask
4: about uh, the energy?
0: Yeah. Question? So it looks like uh, the the
4: public um, is is starting to become more aware about uh, uh, energy issues, specifically about coal uh, generation and the potential harms. Uh, what what did uh, your poll find about? Uh, uh, the we, public's reaction to coal?
0: We asked uh, what t- types of energy people would uh, uh, like to see encouraged in Michigan, and the top was uh, was wind followed by natural gas, and then uh, uh, solar followed that. We also asked in a follow-up question, what do you think should be discouraged? And coal was the top uh, choice, uh, followed by nuclear. And uh, uh, then we also asked, uh, as a follow-up question, Governor Snyder's proposal to have uh, 30% by 2035 in terms of renewable energy, which is wind and solar and geothermal uh, uh, types of uh, energy. And 69% supported that uh, proposal. And uh, uh, that would uh, indicate that clearly people are becoming accustomed to those white propell- propellers that they see yeah. when they drive <laughs> drive around.
3: Well, unfortunately, we, we are
0: out of time. When, when is your next uh, statewide poll, Bernie? We usually uh, poll, uh, if not every month... Uh, Every couple of months, there was a big period of time between September and now because mm-hmm. the media was uh, having us do polling down in Detroit. Well, um, I, I
3: guess the next one's going to be pretty important to Mark Shower. Oh, I would think so, yes. Yeah, all right. Well, Bernie Porn from Epic MRA. If people want to look at uh, these numbers themselves, where can they
0: go? They, go to epicmra.com and press on the press room, and then they can see all of our polls. And then click on them, and you can just right. read through them. All right, thanks for being on. Glad to be Enjoy with you. Enjoy the sunshine.
5: You're listening to
3: Impact Exposure. You're listening to uh, City Pulse here on the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz with Andy Belaskovitz. And on the phone with us now is Dennis Lowney, Vice Chairman of the Board of Water and Lights Board of Commissioners. And for that, I'll turn things over to Andy.
4: Great. Thanks for being on the on the show, Dennis.
6: Sure. Thanks for having me, Andy and Burl. It's a pleasure to be on your show. You guys do a great job, and excited to uh, talk about
4: some of the things that occurred at our meeting last night. We'll
3: see. We'll see at the end of the interview how great you think we are.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the board held a a meeting last night where the uh, the upper management unveiled uh, this uh, "quote unquote" top to. Top to bottom review, internal review of what happened during the December outage and its response. What was your takeaway from last night's meeting?
6: Well, let me start by saying we, as commissioners, were given a draft of this um, on Friday to kind of review. So we weren't just walking into the meeting blindly. Um, there were some changes to the final version, but it was relatively the same document. Um, so, what that gave me and some of the other commissioners the opportunity to do was really kind of go through it and fly spec it and and I, when I first got it I was disappointed in the sense that I thought there were a lot of unanswered questions still um, but what I feel happened last night was and, and obviously we took um, we didn't leave there till about nine fifteen nine thirty so starting at 5.30 we took a lot of time to get questions answered and not all of them were answered, but the bulk of them were. And I think last night showed me that there's some good things that are going to come out of this. Obviously, people suffered. Obviously, it was a bad situation, and we had uh, problems on our end as as Board of Water and Light. But um, I think some of the recommendations are really on the mark, and, and some of the recommendations came from the community forums. They came from citizens came from uh, people who talked to me or called me up or emailed me. So I feel good in that sense that I think uh, it shows that we were listening and that uh, I like to say that we will be prepared for the next emergency, and I think the board moving forward wants to help people prepare for the next emergency because we're going to get hit with another ice storm. We're going to get hit with more snow. We may get hit in the summer where the air conditioning goes down because of the electric grid, but we need to be prepared as citizens, but the board is going to be prepared so that we can minimize anything to prevent what happened during the 2013 ice storm.
4: What are some of the uh, outstanding questions that you still have?
6: Well, I think one of the biggest ones I had was, um, and and it's alluded to in the report, where our outage management system failed, and um, that caused several issues, but to get to the point of that, without an effective outage management system, it is hard to assess damage and take input from customers and then send crews out strategically so that they can do the best job um, and get to those areas that need to get their service back online. So um, some of the questions I had on that outage management system were answered last night, but I still want to see, you know, what. What was wrong with our old system? Why did we come into this new system? It sounds like it was not properly tested, mm-hmm. um, and even um, in the report, it indicates that a patch was put in. Um, it, we received it after finding out a problem in October. We received this this fix, and then we put it in on the twenty eighth. And when we put it in, it wiped out customers who had already called in, and that. so all of a sudden, you know, it created new problems, and they had to go to spreadsheets in tracking how the restoration was going and so my question one of my biggest questions is, is how much testing was done how much have we paid what are the performance guarantees i just think that um, that that's something that's still
4: out there and it seems like if the board had a faulty system for managing this going into the storm why wouldn't they tell make that publicly known and say hey you know we understand this is broken we you know ask for your patience on this, but here we're finding out after the fact that maybe this tracking system was not properly working.
6: And, and you're absolutely right. That question got raised last night, and one of the answers was is we had a, a not as severe a storm, but we had a storm, a windstorm earlier that had occurred um, just, I think, three weeks prior, right around Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and um, the board handled that well. So I believe there was some of this. Um, false confidence of uh, we've got this fixed and we'll put it in but let's get through this storm and um, we can better implement it and make sure everything's working and it just it wasn't a wise choice mm-hmm. um, but I agree with you in the sense that my feeling is, is we should have known coming into winter weather that um, if it's not working then what is our contingencies and do our customers know that we could have these problems?
4: Mm-hmm. And what one contradic- contradiction that seems to stick out to me pertains to the line crews, uh, the the guys who are men and women who are out, you know, repairing the lines. The general manager was saying all along, and I, think, I believe still until last night, that the board had optimal line crews, yet they're hiring uh, several more. Uh, does Don't those statements seem to contradict themselves?
6: They do, but um, and that issue got brought up last night. if you look at at the situation going into it, the feeling was as we had weathered similar storms um, and the, the thought was we we had the optimal amount of crews there that could handle this storm. Um, the issues I think that came up and this was expressed to me in through testimony was that after the fact, uh, all of a sudden, crews came in and repaired uh, pri- 37 primary circuits. Well, those circuits then went down two or three times, and mm-hmm. so you weren't just repairing it once; you had to go back and repair it because the ice storm lasted longer than we've ever had. a situation where tree limbs kept falling and taking out these these um, lines, and one of the crew members that I talked to, he. He had worked with a crew that came up from North Carolina, and they said that they've worked um, hurricanes and seen a lot more devastation, but they never had situations where they had to go back two or three times to repair the same line where it kept breaking. Mm-hmm. They would come in after the fact and kind of um, rebuild the electrical grid system, but this, this, I think, caused something unusual that we simply hadn't planned for,
4: mm-hmm. so... So, some of the one of the questions or i guess general issues i've i 've heard come up at some community forums is whether um, uh, organized labor uh, or collective bargaining contracts uh, for Bwl employees somehow uh, impeded the board 's ability to maybe address as many uh, outage spots um, as it could does does the board of commissioners plan to uh, Uh, Look at these a little more closely. Um, Was there any discussion last night about, uh, you know, maybe if this was realized during the storm that some of those provisions might have been dropped, at least for the time being?
6: Well, I did, did ask one of our union guys, and then I talked to someone I know at Consumers, and they said that there's language in the contract with emergencies like this where they will put all hands on deck and, be willing to um, compromise on some of uh, their, their requirements. And um, the person at Consumers, I, specifically, I asked, you know, is it a policy where we have to have a person go, um, we'll, we'll have a crew in from out of the city or out of the state, and we assign a person to go with them. And they said that's just good best practices. Mm-hmm. Um, they do that. But it's not anything that's required. But it's it's a common practice among the utilities. Uh,
3: so, we're almost out of time, Dennis. I did want to ask you, uh, since you raised best practices, uh, about Peter Lark's decision to delete his emails from the uh, uh, power outage uh, days. Do you think he should have done that?
6: Um, you know, I, I understand that was Peter's policy and his procedure, um, and. He said that comes directly from retention of retention records retention at the state level, um, and he showed me the document from DMB or DTMB I think, and um, I, I think moving forward, well, if that's our policy, we may want to reconsider that. And in times where we have catastrophic storms. We need to hold on to that information in case we want to go back and look at it.
3: All right, very good. Dennis Lowney, vice uh, chairman of the Board of Water and Lights, Board of Commissioners, thank you as always for being on City Pulse.
6: Sure. Well, thank you for having me. You guys have a great day.
3: You too.
5: You're listening to Impact Exposure
1: on 89FM.
3: Our next guest is Joel Ferguson, who is chairman of the Board of Trustees at Michigan State University, but is on the show today in his capacity, uh, Joel Ferguson, businessman. He's a major developer in the state, and it's always a pleasure to have him on the show. Joel, welcome back. Burrow,
1: how are you doing today?
3: Oh, just fine, thank you very much. I want to talk to you about our cover story today about the lawsuit uh, the Jerome's uh, prominent uh, business family as well in Lansing have brought against your company Ferguson Development over the Red Cedar Renaissance project which for our listeners may not know is the redevelopment of the east end of Michigan Avenue in Lansing where the old uh, Red Cedar golf course is. Uh, My takeaway Joel from The story is you got your nose under the tent and then you took over the tent. Is that fair?
1: That's that's a that's totally totally wrong.
3: Okay, I figured it was, but that's my take. Tell me
1: what's wrong with your take.
3: Well, I'll just uh, 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 based on the Jerome's side of the story.
1: Have a take. That's a take on what they said. Right. And that, that I, I, so, okay. Let me restate. So That's
3: my take on what they said. Is that? Is, That's a little different. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, and how how are the Jerome's wrong?
1: Well, first of all, uh, we uh, we started off together, and uh, as we progressed, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and they are allegedly doing what they think they're supposed to do. Um, we had questions about what percentages we would each have. We finally got to where we'd be a third, a third, a third. But Chris Jerome gave me a partnership agreement that really gave them all the control where it basically said that I had to give him my five-year proxy for all decisions, that I had to give him a certain dollar amount uh, each month for him, credit card, everything else, and buy him a car. It also said that that uh, every unit we rented up he would get a percentage off the top, and so whatever my third would be worth, it would be worth far less because it'd be totally diluted by the way this thing was going and we didn't agree. We had a meeting, and uh the mayor refereed it, we didn't come to eye to eye and uh he was working with uh, a group continental i mean um... um Carpenter, uh, I was not allowed to talk to him because he claimed he was a managing partner. Um, we went our separate directions. Uh, the city recognized we had an impasse, or people did. And uh, I'm a developer with 14 housing developments. I mean, I've been developments in 14 Michigan cities, and uh, it was kind of felt that I should do the housing, and he would take it, do the hotel, and the other parts. And uh, so that's the direction we went. I called Frank Cass, and uh, we formed a partnership. We got near the end, and they recognized they didn't have the housing, and they wanted to uh, build a massive student housing. And uh, they, their partners um, didn't want to move forward unless they had the housing. And so they basically left. Who oh,
3: were, they left, they left. Now, they, they claim the opposite. They say they were
1: put out, that they suddenly. They've never been put out. You can't be put out of something you didn't have. One of the big lies in this thing was that to assume that the city did not award any of us the development up to this point. They said that we were, when we were together, or Jerome's, they, we had a, we were someone they were negotiating with. There's never been an award to anyone. Okay, So you can't be put out of something you didn't have. Okay, And the other point, every party, and when you read their lawsuit, they say that Frank, Cass, Cottonella, and Ferguson, and everyone else are doing business in Illinois. That's one of the first parts of the state. None of us do any business in Chicago. Never well, have. Let me
3: explain to our listeners what that's about. The suit by the Jerome's was filed against uh, Ferguson Development and and others in Cook County, Illinois, where Chris Jerome lives. He claims in the suit that he can, that they that Cook County Circuit Court has jurisdiction because all of the defendants do
1: business there.
3: Go ahead, Joel.
1: That's totally untrue. None of us do business in Cook County. Okay, now two things. Why the suit's a waste of time first of all, let's say they want a suit where that they, there's no venue that's proper uh, in in law in state law, they can't enforce any judgment that they get in Illinois in Michigan, so they have to refile the suit in Michigan so but but i mean this is, this is where this is just such foolishness uh, uh Oh, uh, <laughs> is that
3: Chris calling you?
1: <laughs> and so, so this is it's just not foolishness. I mean, first of all, you file a suit someplace, and if you won the suit, you can't enforce the judgment, and you'd have to come back and refile the same suit in Michigan. Ain't not that awful? You know. And the second thing, someone says that we stole some plans, and you look at our plans... We're not doing anything that, that Chris and I originally had. Zero. Zero. So how do you file a suit against for someone for stealing some plans that are not even being in use? Now, that's, that's really another stretch.
3: One of the things I don't understand, though, is their claim that they had a confidentiality agreement with, with Hallmark, which is a subsidiary of
1: well, Frank company. Well, Hallmark is a party to our development and if they had a confidential uh, agreement which they didn't nothing that hallmark has or had with them is being used in this development so so even it's a moot point okay it's a moot point let's say they did even though i know they didn't and if if that, if you have a confid if i have a confidential agreement with you and nothing in my confidential agreement going forward with you that i'm using in another venture i'm having So what's
3: the point? Uh, Mayor Bernero was quoted in City Pulse today as saying the suit, quote, uh, certainly has the potential to stall the
1: project. Do you do you think it does? It has zero. The mayor, mayor, you know, you think the world of the mayor. I do. He's just making a safe statement. He doesn't know. But first of all, they can't get an injunction in Illinois. Okay, for a Michigan project. Therefore. Nothing in this lawsuit stops us from going forward what we're doing. And the lawsuit is about how much money that they would try to uh, get from Frank and me. That had nothing to do with slowing down and stopping the project. Because if they won the case they, in Illinois, which they couldn't collect, they'd have to file the same suit in Michigan. And if they happened to get lucky enough on this frivolous lawsuit and win, then it would be a case of us paying, giving them money, as opposed to having anything to do with slowing down the project, because even if we gave them the money they asked for, we both still have enough to do the project.
4: We have
3: about two minutes to go, and Andy has a question for you. Yeah,
4: what if, and this goes off into another section of the suit, what if a majority of city council members don't want to sell you the land or come to a purchase price or approve a development agreement until this thing is settled?
1: Why would they wait for that? Because there's nothing in the development agreement has any jeopardy for the city of Lansing. That would never happen. Uh, what, what's your and the points I just raised? First of all, it's not about anything that has the city's This just has a, a, a thing, of, and there, there, there's no injunction. So why would the city council and the development of the city needs enjoin themselves? Uh,
3: what, what what is your take on the why the Jeromes would file this out of state, and and if as you say uh, <laughs> they can't even get an injunction, what is this all about?
1: Well, you have to call and ask them. <laughs> They're not because, commenting. Because, well, Chris, Chris, Chris said my lawyer told me not to talk. That meant his wife. His wife's uh, a lawyer in Chicago. He lives in Chicago. Is she a lawyer of the firm Johnson & Bell? That's, I don't know uh, that. Representing she's a lawyer them? in Chicago. And so what they like to do is, I guess, harass us to drag us down the road to Chicago to defend ourselves. And then maybe us not liking to have to go to Detroit defending ourselves, that we would probably give them some money to go away. But, hell, I'm not going to get in a car to go to Chicago win a case of someone. If they win, won, they couldn't, they couldn't enforce anyway. I'm not that dumb.
3: <laughs> uh, the question I always ask you is, we're about out of time, how much are you going to pay for this property?
1: Uh, well, we're certainly not going to negotiate on the City Falls Radio <laughs> <laughs> Well, come on, we won't tell anyone. No, I'm just saying, Burl, I think you're extremely competent. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I enjoy that, but, uh, you know, but just think of what I just said, and, and Andy's question. Well, no one would have self-enjoyed themselves on a case in Chicago between some guy who's trying to extort some money from me. Okay. That would never happen.
3: All right. Well, we look forward to hearing more about okay, this. Well, and, I, I, and I, I hope I
1: answer the questions in a nice way.
3: You always do. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. all right. Joel Ferguson is uh, a developer and chairman of the Board of Trustees here at Michigan State University. And you're listening to City Pulse here on The Impact. and am I'm Burl Schwartz with Andy
5: Belaskovitz. You're listening to
3: Impact Exposure. This weekend, Nate Powell, who is an artist and cartoonist, will be in East Lansing for the 7th Annual MSU Comics Forum and also making a personal appearance at Hollow Mountain Comics and Games. Nate is the co-author with uh, U.S. Representative John Lewis on a book called March, and uh, we have him on the phone with us right now. Nate, welcome to City Pulse. Uh, Nate, uh, this book is uh, a history of the uh, civil rights movement in the United States, and it's actually the first of three books. What what inspired this?
2: Well, um, Congressman Lewis and Andrew Iden, who is a staffer for him and also a lifelong comic lover and comic book writer, um, basically uh, they were wrapping up a campaign five years ago or so And some folks were kind of making fun of Andrew because he was talking about how he was headed to a comic book convention after the campaign was over. And uh, John Lewis kind of stepped in and was like, don't make fun of him. You know, there was a comic book early in the movement when I was a teenager that was very influential. And then Congressman Lewis went on to sort of blow everyone's minds with word of this comic called Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story about the Montgomery bus boycotts. Um, and it just really shook Andrew, uh, especially having never heard of this book. He's gone on to do his graduate thesis about this book and has basically whipped up uh, you know a book about the comic itself. But he kind of uh, just kept talking and talking to John Lewis until uh, uh, John Lewis agreed that you know maybe he should pursue doing a comic of his own about his own experiences in the movement, but in a surprise twist, he's like, all right, let's do it but only if you do it with me. And then uh, they whipped up the script together and uh, got a contract together with my publisher, but they didn't have an artist yet, so then I tried out for the job, and things just worked out very well amongst all three of us.
3: And uh, tell me about John Lewis. What is he like to work with on a book like this?
2: Oh, he well, first off, he is an incredible man. He's definitely he's the real deal. He's one of the most genuine people I've ever met. Um, so he's uh, it's an interesting relationship in that he's, he's very, you know, very receptive to the special storytelling needs uh, of comics. And, you know, what, what's special about the medium and where the power is um, within telling stories in comics. But, you know, he's primarily an oral storyteller. So uh, a lot of the the incidents that are occurring in March, you know, you'll find these archives from different speeches he's given or memoirs he's written, and uh, it's the—I don't know—it's the first time I've ever worked with a writer who was not primarily uh, telling stories in the written form first. So there's a lot of, you know, consideration in terms of respect for the spoken word first, and trying to make sure that John Lewis's voice really shines through in the comic.
3: Is uh, the book, and it's actually going to be three books, this is part one, uh, based uh, just on John Lewis's information and, and memories, or is, is there independent research involved in this?
2: Uh, well, when we're you know really uh, getting down to the nuts and bolts of it, even though he's a primary source and he lived through it, uh, all three of us are definitely double-checking information as we're going. And sometimes there are different perspectives that are happening with other people who are involved, so we want to see what their perspective is on it. And sometimes we're lucky and we're able to still do that in person. Uh, sometimes we have to look through, you know, first, other first-person sources. So, yeah, there's a healthy amount of constant
6: research and confirmation that goes into it.
3: Uh you're 35 years old uh, so you uh, were not a witness to uh, most of the civil rights movement uh what surprised you or shocked you uh, as you learned about it
2: Um well I mean I grew up in the south and my parents are baby boomer Mississippians so I did grow up with a basic working knowledge of the movement itself and I'm you know the south is my home so Culturally and historically, that's nothing I needed to acquaint myself with. What was really surprising to me was just how much I took for granted, being a 35-year-old Southerner, um, this basic l- entry-level information, uh, even, you know, basic working knowledge of Rosa Parks, of Dr. King, etc. Um, and this book has really taken off with uh, with classroom and library settings uh we, we even whipped up our own teacher's guide, so even like 12-year-olds all the way through college-age students are picking up on a lot, and uh, it's really required embracing that there is a huge generational shift between my generation, Generation X, and the, the information that 20-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 12-year-olds kind of enter the book already having. So a lot of that is really not taking for granted even what we might consider uh, some of the fundamentals of the movement in American history.
3: Uh, Bill Castanier, who wrote about the book in this week's City Pulse, says that one of the most disturbing illustrations depicts the 1955 murder of Emmett Till, uh, the 14-year-old African-American youth who was uh, viciously beaten and shot for talking to a white woman. But it says that you balance the tragedy with lighter material. Can you tell me about that?
2: Uh well I mean, yeah, part of one of the one of the unique challenges about this book is that uh in addition to its epic nature, yeah, is the fact that we're dealing with the struggle of a massive a massive group of Americans um to overturn systemic white supremacy in our society. So there is unbelievable darkness and brutality, especially as we get later into the saga. Book two is much darker than book one, but at the same time, uh, yeah. Another thing that surprised me is you know really ironing in that these are largely you know fifteen to 32 fifteen to thirty year olds who are participating in the movement, especially when we're early on when it's largely a student movement, and so recognizing that still you have the You know, you have the energy and you have the perspective of teenagers, of young people. And even though there is a struggle and there is, uh, you know, lots of trauma, darkness, injury, death, at the same time, uh, you know, you can never forget that this is an amazing achievement largely done by a group of young people. Um, And, yeah, losing the human touch in this saga is sort of, uh, that's the the danger of doing a non-fiction a nonfiction comic book account. You know, you're sort of afraid of getting this dry comic book reporting about something historical. So uh, I guess it's very important always to keep, yeah, the the human element of the characters involved in mind.
3: Volume 1 takes uh, John Lewis's life from childhood, which would uh, be during the Depression, uh, through the 1960 uh, Nashville uh, sit-ins where they... we're attempting to desegregate lunch counters. Uh, where will you go with volumes two and three?
2: Well, book two picks up just a little bit after the desegregation, and it uh, starts in Nashville with a stand-in movement to desegregate movie theaters. Uh, it moves pretty quickly into the Freedom Rides across the South, which John Lewis is one of the young co-organizers, um, and deals with the Freedom Riders' time in Parchman State Prison in Mississippi, um, and uh, basically moves through a lot of that back and culminates at the March on Washington in 1963. uh, And book three covers from the fall 1963 bombing of the church in Birmingham uh, that killed the four little girls, uh, the passages of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Uh, and also, of course, covers the assassinations of Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. So the whole trilogy should be going through about 1968.
3: Uh, One final question before we let you go. Uh, Are you concerned that uh, graphic novels are replacing uh, history books uh, in this particular case, or do you think that's a step in the right direction?
2: Oh, no, I, I definitely don't think they're even scratching the surface uh, of, you know, replacing history books. Uh, I'd say this is, this is a unique account from a unique voice, and, uh, you know, it's increasingly rare to have folks who are still with us who participated in such an instrumental way in this movement. So, um, there, you know, this is by its very nature a historical account, but it's a deeply personal account, and I'd say that it's primarily a personal account. So whenever I read John Lewis's memoir, Walking with the Wind, uh, the information is the same within it, but it, it comes across in a very different way. And the same goes for history books as well. We need them all in order to bring up our social consciousness and, and uh, keep all this in mind as we, as we move forward through time.
3: Uh, Nate Powell is the co-author of March, book one, the first part of a three-volume set uh, illustrated by Nate and and written with uh, civil rights leader John Lewis. He's coming to East Lansing uh, uh, this weekend. He'll be at the 7th Annual MSU Comics Forum, and he will also be at Hollow Mountain Comics and Games from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Friday. Uh, and uh, Nate Powell thank you so much for being on City Pulse
2: thanks for having me
3: Uh, we're going to play a little classical music for you now and we'll tell you why in a minute And as to the why, here's our classical music writer from City Pulse, Larry Cosentino. Why did we listen to that, Larry?
5: Well, the orchestra you just heard is the uh, St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra, formerly the Leningrad Philharmonic, the oldest orchestra in existence in Russia. And they're coming here on Monday, coming to the Wharton Center.
3: And uh, we should say they're not playing that piece, but uh, that is, what piece was that, by the way? We
5: heard part of, Sh- uh, sorry, Prokofiev's Sixth Symphony. And, and they, they will,
3: will be playing Prokofiev, but yeah. not that piece. Yeah,
5: they'll be doing the second violin concerto. And,
3: and also a Rachmaninoff
5: Yeah, Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, that'll be the big one.
3: So the two pieces. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so how important is this orchestra?
5: Well, it was a... Uh, one of the first orchestras—it was the first major orchestra—and um, in, in, formed in Russia it, over the Soviet period, the whole 70-some years of the Soviet Union, it was uh, one of the world's top orchestras and still is. And uh, for the last 25 years, it's been ruled by the same man, the music director Yuri Timurkhanov. and uh, it's quite a feather in Michael Brand's cap, the director of the Wharton Center, that he held out. He wanted to get this orchestra here for years, but he wanted to get uh, the maestro himself. It's not always easy to get get someone of that caliber, even to Ann Arbor, let alone here. And uh, it finally worked out, as I understand, because he got a package deal with Yo-Yo Ma and uh, the Estonian National Symphony, which came and gave a tremendous concert a couple of months ago in Wharton. And uh, I think the Vienna Boys choir, they all have the same agent. Ah, and they, had, good, they yeah. all have connections with... Uh, Edward Minskoff, the MSU alumnus who owns half of Manhattan and was uh, uh, a major donor to the Broad Museum. There's a gallery named him at the Broad Museum. Yeah, and yeah. I, have, I, I understand that he hangs out with Yuri Temerkanov when they're— when, uh, Tamerkaoff in the St. Petersburg Philharmonic visit New York. Mm. Uh, there uh, might uh, be some drinking involved, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I certainly hope so. Now, the, the conductor is a bit controversial, at least uh, by Western standards. By uh, something he said about women.
5: Yeah, um, I was researching him. Uh, um, Actually, I saw Yuri Timurkhanov conduct the Leningrad Philharmonic. Yeah, in, you lived
3: in the Soviet uh, Union, didn't you?
5: Yes, but it wasn't there. It was actually in Ann Arbor. Oh, and it was uh, okay. <clears throat> nearly 27, 28 years ago.
3: People will be happy to hear you didn't live in Ann Arbor.
5: <laughs> no, I never did. But uh, that was a very, it's a powerful orchestra, uh, precise um it's often said in in the orchestral world that orchestras are starting to sound the same, that they're heading toward a kind of what they call bright sound. But not the Russian order, the great Russian orchestras, and a, the St. Petersburg Philharmonic has a really rich, deep, low sound and a, a very distinctive sound, very strong sound. So that was a great that was a great experience for me. But when researching the maestro. It, and at that time he wasn't the music director he was the assistant music director under the great, one of the all time great conductors um, Yevgeny Mervinsky who was his mentor Um, uh, but he was here he he brought the orchestra to Ann Arbor Um, so many years later uh, in researching Yuri Tamerkanov I came across a story from last fall, from October by the New Yorker music critic Alex Ross Uh, and he He's very conscious of classical music's image in the modern in modern culture. He's uh, often criticizes. Uh, well, he laments that whenever you see a villain in a movie who's about to dominate the world or a sadistic Nazi who's going to torture someone, they're invariably listening to classical music. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, he's he's tried very hard to um, explain and educate people about. Uh, how classical music didn't stop uh, 200 years ago. There's still uh, a lot of amazing music being written and performed. And not only that, the performers are diverse. We have all kinds of conductors, all kinds of musicians. Um, there are a lot of, there are over 100 female music directors of symphony orchestras uh, in the world. Um, the most famous is probably Marin Alsop, who's music director of the Baltimore Symphony and who conducted the last night of the proms. of the, concert series in Britain that's very prestigious. So apropos of Marin Alsop, actually, he wrote a story about um, Yuri Temarkanov, uh actually gave an interview a year before in fall of 2012 to uh, a Russian newspaper. And it had only just come to Alex Ross's attention. I hadn't, hadn't seen it either. It had missed my eye. Where he made some just amazing remarks about how women, uh, uh, women um, basically... Uh, are too weak to be maestros, and it's wrapped up in this whole cult of the maestro as being this male power figure, which has been held sway in classical music for a long time. Uh, so, and if you go back, you know, he when I talked to Yuri Temerkanov through an interpreter, um, he claimed to have been taken out of context. But if you go back and read the original mm-hmm. interview, it's hard to see. Well, and he didn't you know, back away from it. Either. No, no, not really. No, although he or you know, at least the interpreter, he definitely. said it was only his own, his own <laughs> opinion. Um, but there's a you know there 's this uh, there 's this uh lingering um, cult of the male the dominant male power figure in classical music, even though we have all these female uh, women music directors women conductors, very few of them make it to the top echelon like Marion Alsop is uh, at Baltimore. Um, and it didn 't seem to strike him as uh, uh he didn't seem to strike. It didn't seem to strike him that he might be part of the problem. That as a person with a lot of influence, and, and you know, he's seventy-five years old. He's you know been one of the top figures over there, or uh, really in the world. Um, that 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 might be part of the problem. That that's because male. Um, conductors, and he isn't the only one, there's a conductor Vasily Petrenko, who is, I think the Royal Liverpool Orchestra, the music director and he was one of, uh, in of, of students, made similar comments about women conductors, that they would just be distracting, they'd be too pretty and they, or musicians wouldn't be able to concentrate on the music. And then um, there was another I wrote this down because the more you look into it, the more you find. There's a, a Bruno Montavani, the music director of the Paris Conservatoire, said that the rigors of travel and of conducting were too much for for m- most women. They all admitted there would be exceptions. But of course this is all ridiculous because we have female soloists who travel the world, female performers, female... I mean it just... Um, yeah, a lot of uh, cultural issues go into it and, and tradition issues but yeah, you
3: You t- told us earlier about rugs and women. What was that?
5: Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of Russian proverbs. Uh, I mean you don't want to tar- you don't want to talk about a group of people so broadly and you know, of course there are people here and everywhere that have different views uh but let's just say that uh it's it's been a part and parcel of eastern european and russian culture to uh have a different view of sexual roles than we might have in the West, and it's not evolving at the same rate, let's say, as ours are.
3: And so you may not want to say it, but I think what you said was, that "Rugs and women should be beaten." What
5: weekly? That is something. It's a Russian proverb to You're that right. effect. Yeah, and it's
3: yeah. not one we share, but it is one we are sharing with you. Yet at the same time, you ask him a question I ask you to ask him about, which is uh, his attitude toward uh, homosexuals, and uh, it seemed pretty enlightened.
5: Yeah, it did, and he he came back uh, quite quickly, and he came down uh, very decisively uh, against uh, persecution of gays, and he said it was uh, due to the dismal state of education in Russia that uh, people still think it's being gay is some kind of illness or... Uh, I forgot what he said. Uh, I know. Uh,
3: but he said yeah. it was just basically a lack of education yeah, uh, yeah. in Russia.
5: Yeah, I've also, there's, there's a... There's
3: an, By the, it, let me interrupt. We're talking to Larry Cosentino. I got lost in our conversation. We're talking <laughs> to Larry Cosentino as our classical music writer about the uh, uh, the uh, St. Uh, Petersburg Philharmonic's appearance here uh Monday at the Wharton Center. Go ahead, Larry. Well, I was
5: just here. going to say, there's an attitude in in not just in Russia, but in, in other places in the world that uh, there's a. You even hear the sometimes hear the term "gay mafia" being used. That uh, being gay is uh, um, some kind of um, ploy, even to. Uh, it's the way people used to talk about Jews, frankly mm-hmm. You know, that uh, there are a disproportionate number of gays There are
3: gays, conspiracies uh, and agendas Exactly and They control yeah. the world And, and
5: they help yeah. each other And that's why there's so many of them prominent in the arts and so forth And, and so being a, a gay Jew, I've got it all <laughs> You can have a conspiracy with yourself <laughs> It's fun. <laughs> Well,
3: uh, so uh, clearly you're excited about this concert, and uh, it, it, and it does oh, sound yes. uh, it does sound phenomenal. Uh, but uh, tell me about these two pieces uh, that they're going to play.
5: Well, Rachmaninoff is is not a personal favorite of mine, but this Symphony Number no. Two has been uh, uh, one of the great standards and, and beloved pieces for many many years now, and. Russian orchestras love to bring Rachmaninoff to the West because uh, he is so uh, beloved, you know, not just in Russia, but in Europe, in America. Um, He reaches people, whether it's uh, you love old Hollywood movies, and Rachmaninoff had a lot of influence on, you know, Eric Wolfgang Korngold and Max Steiner and all the old Hollywood composers, and, uh, you know, there's a romanticism to his music that's very appealing no matter what, whereas some of the more abrasive pieces or the more modern pieces are a little more difficult to put over. Uh, I remember reading an interview with uh, Temerkanow where he talked about my favorite composer, Shostakovich, who's very popular here in the West, but he, Temerkanow is reluctant to conduct a major symphony by Shostakovich here in the West because there's a lot of political baggage um, that he's not sure Western audiences really understand. Whereas with Rachmaninoff, you know, who hasn't had their heart broken or um, been in love or doubted the meaning of life and all that great russian stuff and you know it's all it's all in there it's, it's it's a great big uh really beautiful beautiful piece of music and it gives a chance for the orchestra to just bowl you over
3: mm. and uh this is again monday night at the Wharton center i think it uh, starts at 7:30 i there may be tickets i really don't know but uh, it is an I opportunity so. to hear a, a world class uh, renowned orchestra uh, Larry, how's the uh, season going so far for the Lansing Symphony? You, are you impressed?
5: Uh, um, yeah, I've been very impressed. I did miss the last concert, I think you probably know, but because uh, I was out of town. But uh, we're really, in a, we're very lucky here. We have a lot of wonderful musicians, and they they cohere so well together, and they really seem inspired by Timothy Muffet. And he keeps on pushing things a little further and further, and giving us more and more new and interesting stuff. Um, And there's more coming up in the season. There are some really exciting stuff, including one piece that I'm really eager to hear. It's a trumpet concerto by a uh, a contemporary composer, Donald Erb is his name. And and the the principal, uh, sorry, I said trumpet, but I should say trombone. Mm. The principal trombonist, Ava Ordman of the Lansing Symphony, has been actually training, literally training, like, I mean, at the gym for months to play this, because it's it's extremely demanding, Mm. and it calls for all kinds of... uh, uh, vocal effects. Um, she screams at one point through the trombone, and I mean, it's just it really just out there thing, and it's something that you know, I, I, the kind of thing that I love Timothy Muffet for doing. Besides being so good at interpreting the you know the repertoire that we expect okay.
3: to I want to give you a little time to tell us. We're going to go out listening to some music. Tell us uh, what that is.
5: Um, we're going to listen to uh, um, I think it's the last movement of the Prokofiev Second Violin Concerto. That's the piece that the uh, Saint Petersburg Symphony is going to play with a 26-year-old I think soloist, Vilde Frang, Norwegian, wonderful Norwegian violinist. And um, it's uh, uh, well, you'll hear it's it's uh, even though Prokofiev uh, is, he has a reputation for being kind of harsh sometimes. This is really uh, it's romantic, melodic, it's beautiful stuff.
3: And whom are we hearing perform it? Isaac Stern. Isaac Stern. Well, not a bad uh, way to go out on a Wednesday evening. Thanks for listening. Larry Cosentino, thanks so much for being here. Andy as always. Thank you. Thanks, and man. we will be back uh, next week. Good night. Thank you, sir. you know, I, mean? I